I would like to make a motion this morning that we make that our sermon. All in favor say aye. Unanimous, good to see you guys. Have a, I told Eric, that is just not fair. That is just so not fair. He says something so good in one minute, I have 30 minutes and won't even come close. Just not fair, not fair. So good to see all of you. Who's, who's thankful to be here this morning? I'm thankful to be here this morning. So good to see all of you. You know, one of the ways that we grow in godliness is actually by engaging within the life of the body, by being a part of a community. And if you're in your 20s and 30s, we have a young adult ministry called Fireside here that meets on Wednesday nights at seven. We have a big gathering coming up just in a few short weeks this summer. So if, if you're looking to get plugged into this church with other people who are kind of in the same stage of life, encourage you to walk out these doors after the service. There's gonna be some folks passing out some cards and some information about that big event. Would love to see you there. And would you join me as we pray one more time before we open God's word? Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful to, to just have life, just to be here. We are drowning in your goodness this morning. As we've already sung, we are now asking for more of your goodness to helping us understand the Bible, to understand a little bit more of who you are and who we are, how the world works. So would you give us wisdom? Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you help us? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have to say to your church this morning? In Jesus' name, and all God's people prayed, amen. amen. Well, in 1819, Thomas Jefferson completed one of the most controversial projects in American history. Thomas Jefferson was a skeptic of Christianity, but he loved the teachings of Jesus. He loved all the moralistic teachings of Jesus. He hated the supernatural ones. So he had a grand idea. He thought, what if I started a new Bible? and I took out anything that was supernatural, all mentions of Jesus' divinity, the resurrection, the ascension, all miracles, and I just make my own Bible. So he did, in fact, what he did, it was so interesting, he actually took a small razor blade, would cut out portions of the New Testament he liked, glued them to a small notebook, and voila, the Jefferson Bible was born. A couple summers ago, I had the opportunity actually to look at it in Washington, D.C. It was so fascinating to see. But what made this so controversial was the fact that Jefferson thought he could pick out what he liked from the Bible, discard what he didn't like, and still have the truth. Which reminds me of the words of St. Augustine who said so long ago, if you, if you believe what you like in the gospel and discard what you don't like, it is not the gospel you believe by yourself. In other words, to remove from the Bible what makes you feel uncomfortable, and there's a lot of uncomfortable stuff in this book, but to remove that and to totally disregard it is to make yourself a deity, a God. Now, why bring that up? Because if you came to church this morning thinking the Bible is just a divine hallmark card. In other words, filled with Christian cliches and lofty life principles, but never deals with what life is actually like. You will be tempted to cut the book of Ecclesiastes out of your Bible. 
Starting today, we are beginning, as Eric said earlier, a new series in the book of Ecclesiastes all about living faithfully in a frustrating world. You know, one theologian humorously titled Ecclesiastes the most uncomfortable book in the Bible. Why? Because Ecclesiastes, perhaps more than any other book, encourages us to vocalize questions we tend to keep buried in our minds. Questions like, what's the meaning of life? Does my work matter? And questions like, does believing in God actually make a difference? Ecclesiastes is a book that gives us space to ask really uncomfortable questions about life while also giving us a realistic vision of what life actually is like. This means if if you came to church today asking big life questions, big life questions, or if you find yourself skeptical towards Christianity, our journey through Ecclesiastes will feel like a breath of fresh air to you. It will. But to begin our journey together, I want you to know two things before we dive into the book of Ecclesiastes. Two things you must know about Ecclesiastes. Number one, Ecclesiastes is a confusing book. It just is. You know, several weeks ago when Mark had asked me and a few guys to preach to the book of Ecclesiastes summer, I honestly, I wondered why he didn't want to join the fun. (laughs) I did. And then I started studying, and then I read the opening line of one famous commentary that said, quote, Ecclesiastes may be the most difficult biblical book to interpret and preach, and magically it all made sense. It all (laughs) made sense. Revelation is coming for you, brother. (laughs) It is coming. All kidding aside, Ecclesiastes is a confusing book. There's some strange stuff in this book. It doesn't take long to discover as you're jumping into it, you're gonna find some stuff that's gonna have you scratching your head. I got a couple of them. There was a whole, I could take the next 30 minutes with some weird verses, but here are a couple, my favorites. Ecclesiastes 4.2. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. (laughs) In other words, sometimes life is so hard, you wish you could trade places with those folks in the cemetery. We've all felt that way. Or, The NLT version, okay, this is just, this is gold. Ecclesiastes 9.8, wear fine clothes with a splash of cologne. Some of you guys need to make this your life first. You do. (laughs) I've smelled you, you do. Or how about this one? Ecclesiastes (laughs) 7.28, this is so good. I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. Not a good theme verse for a women's ministry, just (laughs) saying. Don't recommend that. Or um, really disorienting sayings like Ecclesiastes 10.19, bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. (laughs) If you ever need a verse to justify playing the lotto, Ecclesiastes has you covered. Listen, this is a confusing book. You know that if you spend any time reading Ecclesiastes, but what makes it so amazing, so helpful, so poignant is secondly, it's not only a confusing book, it's an honest book. It's a book honest about the absurdity and insanity of life. It isn't a book packed with Christian cliches or positive spins on reality. Perhaps more than any other book of the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes is meant to give us a picture of life as it is. Not 
life as it should be, not life as it will be, but life as it is. If Romans is the equivalent of a theologian lecturing about the deep truths of God, and if the Psalms are the equivalent of a singer writing psalms in worshipful harmony to the Lord, Ecclesiastes is the equivalent of an old friend who buys you a cup of coffee, sits down across the table, and says, let me tell you everything I've learned. That's Ecclesiastes. Which is what makes Ecclesiastes so attractive. No matter if you're a Christian or not this morning, you will find beauty in the book of Ecclesiastes. Herman Melville, who is the agnostic author of Moby Dick, once called Ecclesiastes the truest of all books. Or Thomas Wolfe, the great American novelist who also never claimed to be a Christian, said this, quote, of all that I have ever seen or learned, that book, Ecclesiastes, seems to me to be the noblest, the wisest, and the most powerful expression of man's life upon the earth. Then he writes this, Ecclesiastes is the greatest single piece of writing I have ever known. From a guy who doesn't claim to follow Jesus. The rugged honesty about life is what makes Ecclesiastes so beautiful because Ecclesiastes comes along to us, stops you in your tracks and says, yo, life is a little less like Little House on the Prairie and more like Stranger Things. (laughs) It just doesn't make sense. And when you try to make sense of it, you go crazy. At first glance, Ecclesiastes is confusing and strange, but the more you lean in to understand it, you will find that it's brutal honesty about life to be both beautiful and I have found to be so freeing, just so liberating as you navigate this world. So without further ado, turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes right after the book of Proverbs And let's begin in chapter one, beginning in verse one. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Right at the beginning, we learn about the author. He says he is a preacher, the son of David, and a king in Jerusalem. Now, most scholars throughout church history, throughout our Protestant tradition, agree this is most likely King Solomon. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, you've probably heard of Solomon. He was the king of Israel, and as he ascended to power, God gave him the opportunity to ask for anything he wanted. You know what Solomon asked for? Wisdom. And God not only gave him wisdom, but 1 Kings 10.23 tells us God gave Solomon so much wisdom and so much wealth that the Bible says King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. But as as time, of course, as the story of Solomon goes on, as time goes on, Solomon began to turn away from God and chase pleasure, prestige, women, wealth, and on and on the list goes. One theologian described his life well when he writes the following. If ever there was a human being that strolled down every avenue of potential human satisfaction, it was Solomon. Solomon had absolutely everything, everything, But as he got towards the end of his life and reflected on all that he had done and received and achieved, here's his evaluation, verse two. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
So Solomon says, all of life, everything he achieved and accumulated is vanity. The word vanity in the, is the Hebrew word hevel, hevel. I just love that word. Turn to your neighbor and say, hevel. Isn't that a great word? Hevel, hevel, hevel. It's used 38 times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes and can be translated to mean vapor, meaningless, and futility. It's the same word used in Psalm 144 where David writes, O Lord, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a hevel, breath. His days are like a passing shadow. In other words, as Solomon observes life, he says it's a bit like breathing out a deep breath. It's there for a moment and then gone forever. It's temporary, fleeting, and empty. And because it's so temporary, he asks the question, verse three, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That's a great question. Don't you ask yourself that sometimes? Like, like why am I working so hard when it feels like I just can't get ahead? That's Solomon's question. And the reason he asked this question is because he's made three observations about life that he's gonna spell out for us in chapter one. Three observations Solomon has made about life. First, here's what he observes. Life is short. Life is short. Look at verse four. It says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Solomon observes that life is incredibly short. A generation of people come and go, and yet the earth keeps on spinning. And as we'll see a little later in verse 11, most people, including us, will one day be forgotten. We will be. We all know this firsthand. Like, we know this. For example, raise your hand if you know the name of your grandparents. Go ahead, raise your hand if you know the names of your grandparents. I, I was hoping there'd be more names or I thought this was gonna be a little awkward Father's Day lunch here. Okay, put your hands down. Now raise your hand if you know the names of your grandparents' grandparents. Look around, I mean, just a few of us. For those of you, that's more than I thought. But it's just a few of us. Now, now think about this for a moment. If you're a grandparent right now, your grandkids' grandkids probably won't even remember your name. Welcome to College Park Church. <laughs> but, but that's true, isn't it? Like we are here, we live out 80 years, and then we're forgotten. Solomon is saying that life is so short that you are here for a moment, you die, and then eventually you are forgotten. I love how Edgar Allan Poe, he, he, he said, the mightiest of all creatures is the worm because it's the worm that eats the elephant, the lion, and the mightiest of men. What is this point? All of us one day will be six feet under. We're gonna be gone. And the worm, as the book of Job says, sweetly feeds on them all. Or in the words of Mark Twain, at the end of your life, the world will lament you for an hour and then forget you forever. Solomon observes first that life is short. Secondly, he observes life is repetitive. Look at verse five. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. 
The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around the wind goes on its circuits. The wind returns. Verse seven, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they will flow again. What's happening here? Solomon compares life on earth with the cyclical nature of the sun, wind, and the sea. He says like the sun goes around and around, like the wind blows from north to south, and like the sea evaporates and comes down as rain, so goes the life of every person to ever live. His point is that life is relentlessly repetitive. You can't stop it. We all experience this on a daily basis. In fact, a couple weeks ago, I, I literally thought I just saw my wife doing laundry and like, it felt like two hours later she's doing it again. And so I just looked at her, I'm like, laundry again? And then like kind of hid so she didn't hit me or something, you know? I'm like laundry again and she shot back, Ecclesiastes, baby. Her, her point, her point in saying that was that doing laundry is just one example of what Solomon's talking about here. You do laundry one day only to have to do it again tomorrow. Amen? I hope that's not true in heaven. I do not want the laundry duty job in heaven. Do not want that job. You mow only to have to mow again next week. Don't you hate that? This week, I've not mowed one time, and I'm just praying that the spirit in the middle of the night comes and just cuts my lawn, and it hasn't <laughs> happened yet. You change your kid's diaper only to have to change their blowout in the next five minutes. You clean your room today, only to be told you gotta clean it again tomorrow. As Solomon zooms out and looks at life, he observes that life is not linear, it's cyclical, which causes us sometimes to say, what is the point of this? Like, what's the point of this? To, to put it another way, Solomon is expressing what we all feel from time to time, that life just feels like a giant hamster wheel. And we can't get off. That was a great laugh. Thank you. I'll be here all night. Just kidding. He said life's going around and around and around, and there is no gain. You're on a treadmill. You're not getting anywhere. He says life is short, it's repetitive, but thirdly, he observes, life is unfulfilling. Look at verse eight. He says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. As Solomon looks out at the world and observes how repetitive creation and life itself is, he exclaims, all things are full of weariness. That word in the original language means something like physical exhaustion. I think it's what Paul gets at later in the book of Romans, that all of creation is groaning. It's exhausted, it's tired, it's weary. So much, in fact, that he says, a man cannot utter it. What does that mean? I love how the contemporary English version of the Bible translates this verse, quote, all of life is far more boring than words could ever say. <laughs> That's what it means. That's what it means. Solomon says life is so short and repetitive that it's hard to even put it into words, isn't it? And because life is so short and repetitive, we will waste our time trying to be fulfilled by it. That's his point. Look at what he says. Back to verse eight. He says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. 
In other words, Solomon says you can spend your life trying to be fulfilled by what you can see or hear, and yet, just like the ocean is never full, you'll always need seconds of what the world is feeding you. Always will. You always need more, 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 and you'll always have an empty stomach. There'll always be one more movie to watch, one more promotion to chase, one more place to visit, one more song to listen to, one more person to meet, one more shirt to iron, one more thing to buy on Amazon, and on and on it goes. Solomon says, even if you got everything you could experience in this life, you would still feel empty. And there's no better person to tell us that than Solomon. So, so mankind ask the question, but what if we experience something new? Will that help? And Solomon anticipates the question and answers in verse nine. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? He says, don't get too excited. It has already been in the ages before us. While it is true that there have been and will continue to be new inventions created and advancements made by man, and we should be thankful for that, while that is true, that's not Solomon's point. Solomon's point is that even the new inventions and advancements can't break the cycle of life. Good luck. I remember when the iPhone came out. Anybody remember that? I had a, like an envy. You guys remember that? Not a sin, but a phone, okay? Called the envy. And a little thing that you flip and you text on. Somebody know what I'm talking about? I love that thing. And then the iPhone came out. And I was working full time as a sandwich artist at Subway. Um, Why are you laughing? That hurts, you know? Um, I can still make a great spicy Italian. I can. And I remember I saved up my money to get the new iPhone, and I thought, I'm finally going to get a date. I finally am going to get a date. I just need this iPhone. And guys, I got the iPhone. Yeah, it did not work well for me. In fact, I dropped the iPhone three days in, and it broke. Thank you. That's... <laughs> And I went back to the envy. And life went back to the way it was. Still working at Subway, still couldn't get a date, still eating way too many cheeseburgers. Life just kept on going. Something new could not break the cycle. And that is the point. Thomas' point is that even the new inventions and advancements can't break this monotonous, unfulfilling cycle of life. Theologian David Gibson explains this well when he writes, quote, Solomon doesn't mean no new things are ever invented of the world, for clearly that is not true. He means there is nothing new we can ever discover to break the cycle and so satisfy us. A new government is still a government, and we're all familiar with those. A revolution heralds a new era, and we've all seen it before. A new baby is still a baby, and the world has always been full of them. When we conquer our solar system, humanity will then try to conquer the galaxy beyond it. We never have our fill. And then he says, there is nothing new about humanity in the unfolding of all of our progress. Even the new things are recycled. 
Have you seen the things people are wearing these days? Like, hold on to all of your clothes because in 50 years they will be cool again. I, I promise you. Things are recycled. Even what we think is new has already been. And more importantly, Solomon says, if you think that you'll somehow be remembered because of the big splash you made in your life, think again. Why? Look at verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Think about what Solomon is saying for a minute. You can achieve something so great, so awesome, so groundbreaking, and you will still be forgotten. Don't believe me? Pop quiz. You guys ready for a little pop quiz here? Five questions, see if you can answer all five. Number one, who was the 20th president of the United States? Anybody? Number two, what are the names of the Fab Four of the Beatles? I hear some of you like, oh, I know those. Most of us don't, most of us don't. Um, number three, who invented air conditioning? You should know that, y'all. We're enjoying it right now. Number four, what are the names of the two people who invented the internet? Okay, here's an, it wasn't Google. It wasn't Google. Um, Google's not even a person. Okay, number five. <laughs> number five, this is an easy one. Who has never lost a one-on-one -on -one game against Nate Irwin? That's an easy one. Um, that would be me. And I, and I thought, a few of you thought, I, I, going into this, I thought, a few of you aren't, aren't gonna believe me. So I, someone actually got a picture of us playing one-on-one -on -one last week. Do we have that picture? Yeah, there it is. It's just really embarrassing how he's smiling while I'm doing that. Um, really embarrassing. He thought I wasn't gonna get him back, y'all. He thought I wasn't gonna get him back. Here we are, here we are. Solomon's point is that if you live your life believing that if you do something so significant, You'll be remembered forever and finally fulfilled. Think again, he says. See, the point of Ecclesiastes is to show us life as it is. It's short, it's repetitive, and it's unfulfilling. And when we embrace Ecclesiastes' description of life as it is, it should impact us in two ways. Number one, it should humble us. Ecclesiastes reminds us that our lives are more valuable than we can imagine, but less significant than we think. We are made in the image of God, which means all of us this morning are overflowing with dignity and purpose and value, and yet, at the same exact time, we are dust. We're here for a few years and then we're gone forever. And when we embrace this reality, and in the words of Psalm 90, number our days, we become wise. Why? Because when you realize life is short, your priorities will radically change. Being present with your loved ones becomes more important than answering that next email. Cultivating friendships becomes more important than curating your make-believe life on social media. Playing with your kids becomes more important than having a perfectly clean house. And spending time with God becomes more important than having a completed to-do list. 
See, one of the most frequently repeated themes in the book of Ecclesiastes is that of enjoyment. Enjoyment. Enjoying food, friends, work, and life itself. To the point that Solomon will say later in chapter two, verse 24, there is nothing better, there's nothing better than for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. And the only way enjoyment grows is in the soil of humility. Remembering that our lives are valuable, but at the end of the day, we're dust. We're here today, but gone tomorrow. One of the temptations for us in the summer is if you have a vacation planned, is to think that that vacation is going to be something new that's gonna break the cycle of your life. Which is why for so many of us, when we go on vacation, we come back so disappointed. Because we expect the vacation to do something for us only Jesus can. Last week, I went, I was in San Diego, California. It was amazing, y'all. It was amazing. And I remember, this happens to me every vacation. I got to about day two and I felt sad. Why? Because I thought, we only have four days left. (laughs) What are you talking about? Like, enjoy the vacation, you know what I mean? But I went into it thinking, oh, I need a break, I need a reprieve, and and I was trying to squeeze something out of vacation that I cannot. Solomon says, instead of trying to squeeze something out of it you can't, why don't you just enjoy it as a gift from God to you? See, the message of Ecclesiastes is that when you remember that your life is short, it will lead you to enjoy the people around you, to celebrate every blessing God gives us this week and to make the most of our days because we don't know how many more we have left. Ecclesiastes should humble us, but more importantly, secondly, it should motivate us. Ecclesiastes is a collection of Solomon's observations of what he calls life under the sun. And what he observes is that you can spend your life chasing after power, prosperity, pleasure, and perfection, but you will never have enough. Or to put it another way, Solomon says you can eat all you can from this world and you'll still have a growling stomach. So the question we're left with is this, what will satisfy us? What's gonna do it? If there is nothing new under the sun to end our cravings for significance and meaning, what hope do we have? That's the question that hangs at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. But as one theologian says, Ecclesiastes asks the question the New Testament answers. In other words, fast forward through redemption history and we see a story where a God beyond the sun becomes a man under the sun. And in a world with nothing new, Jesus does the unthinkable. He speaks a new word with a new covenant that offers new birth, that brings about new life with new hope in a new world called the new heavens and the new earth that will be filled with sinners who are given a new identity forever. That is the answer to the question. And it is this story that Ecclesiastes is pointing us towards a story where broken people embrace Jesus by faith and find in him everything they've been looking for under the sun. So friend, if you're here today and you've made a mess of your life and you feel like there is no way God wants anything to do with you, good news, there is new grace, new mercy available to you today. Today. 
Ecclesiastes is a cosmic notification alerting you of the vanity of chasing after the things of this world and the satisfaction of following Jesus. In other words, the book of Ecclesiastes should motivate us to stop looking in the world for what we can only find in God. Instead of looking for fulfillment in work, pleasure, possessions, people, dreams, vacations, kids, friends, school, sports, position, car, house, money, we should fix our eyes on Jesus. The one who Psalm 145 says satisfies the desire of every living thing. So this week, when your heart tries to squeeze satisfaction out of something other than God, I want you to remember the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember that life under the sun is short. It's repetitive, and at the end of the day, it is unfulfilling. But living with God, following Jesus, is forever meaningful and satisfying. Or in the words of C.S. Lewis, if I find in myself with desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And friends, we were made for another world beyond the sun. Let your heart meditate on that truth this week. Let's pray together. Father, we need the message of Ecclesiastes because our temptation is to tell ourselves that life is long, that there's new things that we can grab onto that will satisfy us, and Lord, we are always left with empty hands. So would you help us even today as we meditate on this glorious book to remember what the preacher says, that all is vanity, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And as we embrace that truth, would you then point our hearts to Jesus, who is nothing but beautiful and satisfying. So would you help our hearts today and this week? In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen, amen.